transgressors. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you first for the cross of Christ and we thank you for what it represents and what it means to us as uh, your redeemed people. As we just read in Isaiah 53, it speaks of it prophesied 700 years before the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just want to take time this morning to thank you and to praise you for our substitute. For the fact that you saw fit in your sovereign plan, your sovereign will, to crush Christ, your son, your only begotten son, for our sins. That he was smitten and he was afflicted by you for our sins. Lord, only Christ could take and bear the full brunt of your holy and just wrath against sin. And Lord, I don't think we contemplate enough what our sins cost the Savior. I don't think we meditate and, and just think about the fact that it was our sins that Christ died for. It was our sins that Christ suffered on the cross for. The scripture tells us that he was wounded for our transgressions. That he was bruised for our iniquities. That he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. Lord, I don't think we as believers contemplate this truth enough. And to let it bring comfort to us. Because Lord what we try to do in our own fail and weak uh, human strength. Is we try to uh, soldier forth and just carry our own burdens. And carry our own sins with us. When we have the perfect one who bore them for us. And Lord sometimes we don't realize that when we try to carry our sin burden that we are negating in uh, practice the work of the cross and what the cross uh, came to mean. Lord, as we look to the cross and the death of Christ today, may we be reaffirmed and reassured in the fact that Christ suffered as our substitute, that he suffered in our place that he took our place on that cross, that he is the only one who was worthy to take on your wrath against sin as you poured it out on him. And Lord, as we affirm and reassure ourselves of that reality, may we continue to cherish that cross and cherish the work that did on the cross, the work that Christ did on the cross. And always have it in our minds and in our hearts. And Lord, for those who are unbelievers that, that we know in our, in our lives, they don't know how to deal with their sin. But Father, we can tell them with great certainty that there is one who did deal with their sin. And his name is Jesus. And if they confess and believe in their hearts, that they turn from their sins and turn to this living God as we read earlier in our assurance of forgiveness that you will graciously forgive. Father, you will receive all those who turn to you. So Lord, those of us who have loved ones who are in essence, they are grappling with their sins. They don't know how to deal with their sins, Lord, but we know how to show them. We know where to point them to. We know who to point them to. We point them to the cross because many people, especially this time of year, have a grave misrepresentation of what the cross means. 
They think it means just a a piece of jewelry or an ornament or a or a tattoo. Lord, that cross means suffering. It means death. But it also means atonement. It means forgiven. It means propitiation where the wrath of God was satisfied, where holy justice was satisfied on that tree, on that cross, on that piece of wood. And Lord, give us the boldness to point people that way, point them to the cross, that they may come and bow down, humble themselves, and be saved. Father, we pray for our nation. As I was having lunch with Bob this past week, we were praying and lamenting uh, the course that our nation and our world has taken concerning uh, the unborn, uh, concerning uh, the attempts to pervert God's design when it comes to uh, our bodies as human beings and uh, how you create us in your image, male and female, there is an assault on God, is an assault on truth, and any assault on truth is an assault on God, who is the only source of truth. So, Lord, we, we pray for our nation. From the White House on down, there is an assault on truth. And, Lord, how can we expect you to bless a nation that believes that babies inside the womb are nothing but medical waste. A nation that believes that it is okay for, for children to mutilate their bodies and, and take uh, drugs that will affect them for the rest of their lives and think that it's okay. How can you bless a nation that does not protect its own people by allowing our borders to be porous and allowing people to just just come in any kind of way they want. And we have to take care of them. We have to foot the bill for them. Lord, how can you bless such a nation? You cannot. All those things are an abomination to you. They violate your principles, your precepts, your commands, your statutes that you have set forth in your word. They violate your created order. Order. And as Paul says, these people have exchanged the truth of God for the lie and have worshiped created things rather than the creator God who is blessed forever. So, Lord, we pray that you have mercy on us as a as a nation. And, Lord, I pray for the church, the true church of Jesus Christ. That we do not capitulate, in other words, that we do not give in, that we do not bow the knee to the demands of those who reject you that we stand fast that we hold forth the word of God that we proclaim with apostolic boldness the truth of God the truth of your word do it with love but proclaim the truth nonetheless that the church doesn't cower that the church doesn't bow down that the church does not compromise because Lord once we compromise in one area we might as well compromise everywhere else there once truth is compromised it is no longer truth so Lord give the church the boldness to continue to hold on and to proclaim the truth and Lord we pray for our sister churches Anderson Bible Grace Fellowship Redeemer Christian Fellowship, Mountain View Church, Iron City Baptist, First Baptist, Lionville, and all other like-minded brethren in our area, that they continue to be faithful to proclaim your word, to proclaim your truth, to shepherd the flock of God, to love and serve their members and their congregates, and that the congregates of each one of our congregations, Lord, love and serve each other. As the faithful of God, as we gather together with saints from all over the world on this Lord's Day. Lord, strengthen the brethren this morning. Strengthen us as we preach your truth. Strengthen us as we shepherd your church. 
and all of our elders that we do the same thing that you strengthen us all father I pray as we come down to the preaching of your word that you fill me with your spirit to preach this text well concerning the death of Christ our suffering substitute may I not preach my words and my wisdom but to preach your holy word and father send the spirit to illuminate what we hear this morning illuminate your truth to us show us your truth and Lord refresh our hearts rekindle our passions for Christ teach us from heaven this morning your holy word in Christ's name I pray amen and let us turn to the book of Matthew we going to string all this together as we look this morning at the death of Christ last week we looked at the life of Christ proclaiming that Jesus is God which is a controversial Christian doctrine believe not there are some I won't call them Christians because you can't be a Christian and don't think that Jesus is God also there are false Christian and false apostate churches that uh, do not believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ that they can't believe that a God would punish his own son for the sins of those who believe they think that that is a harsh and unloving God they think that there was a harsh and unloving act by God the father to crush his own son but I contend with you this morning that that is the greatest act of love that God has ever performed because that act made it possible for us to be saved. If it had not happened, we would still be in our sins. So we're going to look at these passages and then deal with our introduction and then go to our principles. The first passage, Matthew 16, are those who read 16, verses 13 through 16, and then 21 through 24, uh, reads as follows. And we uh, referred to this passage last week, actually. It says, when Jesus came into the re region of uh, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. The prefix bar in Hebrew or in uh, Jewish history means son of. So Simon, the son of Jonah. For flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Amen. Going down to the 21st verse after Christ uh, gave the revelation of the church. It says from that time. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And then turn to Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. This is when the Lord's table was instituted. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said take eat this is my body 
Then he drunk, took the cup rather and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins or forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And then Matthew 27 verses 45 through 50. Reads as follows. Now from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they had heard it said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I begin by asking a question. What kind of misconceptions and misunderstandings about Jesus, his person, and his work are common in our day? And how do the Gospels correct these misconceptions? I think one of the great misunderstandings about Jesus is that, one, he's not deity that he was not God, that he was just a, a mere man. He was an enlightened being, that he was a good teacher, that he taught some good moral things. He was a good moral teacher, that he was an example. You know, even uh, Christians say that, yes, Jesus was a good example. And those who reject God say that he was perhaps a good teacher. He has some good things to say like other uh, religious teachers like perhaps Mahatma Gandhi or, or the Dalai Lama or you know people like that who are leaders of, of uh, within false uh, religions. That he was just a good man. But not that he was the God man, not that he was the Lamb of God. And unfortunately, some people in the church think these same things about Christ. That he's just a good example to follow among many other examples. That there is nothing exclusive about Jesus. In the age of inclusivity, where everyone has to be included in everything, many people lump Jesus into the same worldview. They deny the exclusivity of Jesus, the exclusivity of Christ as the only one sent by God. They deny the exclusivity of Christ, that Christ is the only way to God. Those are a lot of misconceptions, but the Gospels, as we just read, uh, corrects these misconceptions. Here in these passages, we see Jesus revealing to his disciples that he was indeed the long awaited Messiah because first he asked him and we'll get into this in our principles who do men say that I am and then who do you say I am he revealed that he was the disciple who would suffer for his people and all the disciples didn't understand the idea of a suffering Messiah Jesus linked his suffering with his mission and on the night before his death he spoke of himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and then the next day he was crucified in Jerusalem where he gave up his life and took upon himself the punishment that we deserve that's why the earth went dark for three hours 
because in that moment God had forsaken Christ as he bore our sins and paid the penalty because a, a holy and just God cannot look on sin. Christ took the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against God. And this points to the fact that God's kingdom came through redemptive suffering because the suffering of Christ was one of redemption. One of paying a ransom. Purchasing us from sin. When we think about Christ as our substitute. It means that he took our place when we could neither face nor bear with the wrath of God for our sins. None of us can bear to stand the wrath of God for our sins. His substitution was uh, penal. The, the theological word is the penal substitutionary atonement. When you think about the word penal, think about the penal system. Penal means punishment. Okay, the, the, the penal system is the system of uh, jails and, and prisons where people go to be what, punished for their crimes. That's why they call it a penal system. So when we think about the word penal, we think about penalty. So we think about the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. It means that Christ paid the penalty as our substitute for our sins he paid the penalty for our wickedness he suffered what we deserved to suffer this is why the Holy Spirit says that he once suffered for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God this is 1 Peter 3 and 18 Christ suffered the just he being just for us being the unjust. So he wasn't just a mere good man who taught moral things. No, he was the suffering substitute. He was a substitute for us. He stood in our place. He bore our wickedness. He wasn't just some enlightened being who taught good things about uh, turning the other cheek or doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. He wasn't just about the golden rule or the Beatitudes. It was more. He was the just who suffered for unjust people like all of us are because all of us are unjust. All of us are wicked. The Bible testifies against us if we think otherwise. There is none who does good. No, not one. But you have one just man, and that is the man Jesus Christ. Jesus kept the law of God perfectly by his sinless life. He satisfied the judicial demands of the broken law in his death. That's called propitiation. He satisfied, he appeased God's wrath. He met the demands of the law because the law said that the soul that sins shall die. Christ satisfied that. He became a curse for us. He bore the curse of the law. We are the lawbreakers, not Christ. We're the ones who broke the law. We're the ones who did not obey the Ten Commandments. But Christ was the divine law keeper. And he died as our substitute to satisfy, to satisfy God's law. And he took our place and he suffered our punishment. Paul said in Romans 5, scarcely for a good man will somebody die. Scarcely for a good man. But Paul also said in that same part of Romans 5 that while we were what? Yet sinners. 
Christ died for us. So that's what we think about when we think about substitute that Christ took our place. So the big idea of our sermon this morning is that as our suffering substitute, Jesus suffers for his people. He brought about a new covenant and he brings salvation to his people. So our first passage this morning is our first principle that as our substitute, Jesus is the Messiah King who suffers for his people. Now, in this passage, the, the setting provides the context. The setting of this passage was in Caesarea Philippi. And there was a well-known temple to Caesar and a shrine to one of their gods that was in this city. This is the same place where Jesus had affirmed the promised Messiah would rule uh, the whole world back in uh, Psalm 2 and 8. So Jesus was in the place in the Roman Empire where there was, a, there was a temple to Caesar because you have to understand during this time in world history the Romans practiced emperor worship where Caesar was Lord. Caesar was God. There's no God but Caesar. And Christians were seen as atheists in the first century. Because we did not worship Caesar. Caesar was God, whoever the ruler was. Caesar was the, uh, the name of their ruler, like president would, would be in our case. So they had a temple to Caesar and a shrine to one of the gods. So this is the context. Jesus knew the context in which he was in. And so he asked two questions of his disciples. The, the first question was a general and impersonal question. Who do people, who do men, who, who do the world around us say who he, the Son of Man, is? And we see their answers in this passage. Psalms say this. Psalms say that. That's why when I began, I talked about the misconceptions of Christ. If you, if you go around and take a survey of your, your co-workers or perhaps some of your family members or perhaps some people who um, profess Christ. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Some may say, you know, he's Messiah, he's the son of God. But I guarantee you, Mom, if you ask a hundred of them, probably they will probably say that he was a moral teacher. And he was a great example. All these other things. And Jesus knew their context, so he asked this question, who do these people, who do these pagans around here say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets, that he was just a mere prophet. But his second question was direct and personal. He asked, who do you, disciples, who do you, the twelve, who do you, Christian? say that Jesus is. And Peter answered first, saying, you are the Messiah or the Christ. Christ means Messiah. The son of the living God. And Peter, in the answer, he confessed that Jesus is the anointed king whom God had promised to Israel. And as the son, Jesus is the rightful heir of God's kingdom. And how do we know this? You have to go all the way back to Second uh, Samuel. And this is what the Lord told David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. And he was speaking of Solomon. Who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him. 
He says, in your house, he was talking to David, and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. The Lord was speaking to David of Christ because Christ is the son of David. That is one of his messianic titles. He sat on David's throne. David was a Christ king. David was a type of Christ as the prototype of a king. And Christ would be on David's throne. So this king God had promised to Israel was Christ. And so that's what Peter was acknowledging in his answer. Now, Peter got the answer right, but he didn't fully understand the implications of his answer, which are found in verses 21 through 23. It's not enough to state that Jesus is the Messiah. We must also know the why and how of his coming. Why did he come? To suffer many things. And to be the substitute for our sins. That is why he came. And how? By being killed and being raised on the third day. And you saw how Peter's response was to that, right? When he said that he must do what? He must, he must suffer many things. And Peter's like, oh, no, far be it. No, 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 no. But Peter was thinking like a mere man. So those were the implications. So what are the implications for acknowledging Christ as Messiah? First of all, we must remember that we are confessing him as king. He has the prerogative to declare what kind of king he is and how he will accomplish his purpose. Why? Because it is his authority. A king has full authority over his kingdom. It is his authority, not ours. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, who lived in the uh, 18th, 19th, and early 20th century, he said, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. So we're acknowledging Christ as Messiah. We are confessing him as king, meaning that he has absolute rule. And every king has a kingdom. And that kingdom is made up of his subjects who are the people under his rule. So when we're acknowledging Christ as Messiah, we're acknowledging him as king. We're confessing him as king, as Lord, as ruler. Second, we must remember that the gospel message is incomplete without the cross. There's no gospel without the cross. Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and be killed and be raised on the third day. There's no gospel without the cross. You can't proclaim the gospel without proclaiming the cross. It's not enough to confess that Jesus is the Messiah if we don't understand that his mission involves suffering and death. We just read that in our responsive reading in Isaiah 53. There is no mission of Christ that is complete without his suffering and his death. Again, it goes back to the question I asked in the beginning. What kind of misconceptions are there about Christ? Many people don't talk about his suffering, that the Holy Lamb of God suffered. He suffered. Or as the old hymn says that we sing, he suffered, bled, and died. There is no gospel without the cross. Thirdly, if Jesus' mission involved the cross, then those who would follow him must embrace the same. They must embrace the same. If you look at Matthew 16 and 24, Jesus said to his disciples right after he told Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> he said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, 
and follow me. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Cross equals suffering. It equals ridicule. It equals scorn. The cross in Roman history was where criminals were crucified. They were shamed. Many of them were hung up on those crosses for days, for weeks, for Romans to send a message to other criminals like them. This is what's going to happen to you. There is nothing but shame in the cross, and Christ bore that shame for us. He bore that curse for us. We have to take up our crosses and follow him. We're called to lose our lives in exchange for life everlasting because he says in verse 25 of Matthew 16, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And I love that last question he asked. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is the theology of the cross. And suffering. What will a person give in exchange for their soul? Many people sell themselves out at the expense of their soul. They seek fame. They seek acclaim. They seek worldly attention. They seek the fleeting moments of happiness at the expense of their soul. They seek the deceitfulness of sin in exchange for their soul. Not realizing that one day, it's like the man that Jesus told the parable, he acquired all these great things and he, he built bigger barns. And it was told to him, man, You've acquired all these things. You're going to have to give an account before God. That's what people give in exchange for their soul. But as the Messiah King, Jesus has to be king over everything as our substitute, as our Messiah. He has to be king over our finances, our marriages, our children our relationship our jobs what we do how central is the cross to our understanding of who Jesus is those are things we have to consider in what ways is taking up our cross connected to following Jesus in his mission your cross of suffering may be your job it may be your marriage it may be with the raising of a difficult child That can be a means of suffering for us. How do we look at that in light of what Jesus suffered as our substitute? It don't mean that those things are not real, but they pale in comparison to the suffering that our Savior experienced on our behalf, in our place, as the Messiah of God. Amen. Views from church history. I have a few quotes here from early church fathers, but one of them was more recent. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he lived during the uh, time of uh, Adolf Hitler in, in Russia, and he was persecuted for his Christian faith. He lived from 1906 to 1945. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He says, suffering then is a badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Jesus told his disciples that in Matthew 10, uh, when he told them about the suffering that they was going to uh, encounter. He says, the teacher is not, uh, I'm sorry, the disciple is not above his teacher. If they persecuted you, they will persecute me. Thomas Brooks, the great Puritan, 
saying, as our greatest good comes through the sufferings of Christ, so God's greatest glory that he has from his saints comes through their sufferings. The greater we suffer, the greater, greater that glory is going to be when we get to heaven and get that crown. Man, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be so worth it. Just think about it in a human sense. A person who's gone to college and, man, they really had a hard time in school. And that day of graduation comes, it's like so much joy. Or a, or a mother that is pregnant and she goes through a very difficult pregnancy. And then she goes to labor. And it's, it's amazing how instantly that happens after all that labor and all that, that pain, the immediate joy that that mother feels when that baby. It's, it's, it's amazing how that happens. Isn't that right, friend? You know, all that, all that pushing, and, and you know, I was, I was there for both of them, and, and, and all that pushing and pushing and all that strain and all that pain, and as soon as that baby comes out, that joy, like, it, it's amazing. Think about the suffering that we encounter in this world. You know, I've often quoted John MacArthur. He said, the greatest thing about heaven is that there will be no sin. It is the absence of sin. Sin has ravaged every part of creation. The mark of Adam is in all of us. But man, when we go to be with the Lord, think of how much joy we're going to have having endured all the suffering. You know what kept Christ on the cross as the writing Hebrew said? The joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. That joy was what? Being back in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Then John Bunyan, the, the great Puritan and writer, of Pilgrim's Progress. He says, if you will be rid of a hard heart, that great enemy of the growth of the grace of fear, be much with Christ upon the cross in your meditations. For that is an excellent remedy against hardness of heart. A right sight of him as he hang there for your sins will dissolve your heart into tears and make it soft and tender. Man, that's, that's so good. If our hearts are, are being hardened because of the sufferings of this life, we have to have a right sight of Christ. And as we do that, we'll dissolve our heart into tears and it will make it soft and tender because why? We'll know, man, my Savior suffered worse than this. You have to understand this about Christ. Not only did he suffer as, as man, he suffered as God. He was the God man. He suffered as a sinless man. He lived a perfect life. He did not sin. He became sin who what? Knew no sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became sin who knew no sin. He suffered as a sinless man he was our sinless substitute he was without blemish as our savior man praise the lord for that our next principle here jesus is the sacrificial lamb who brings about the new covenant we see this in matthew 26 uh passage and this was at the uh some people say the final supper, the Lord's table. When we share our meals together, we gather. We never gather just to eat, but also to share time at the table, as we do when we have our fellowship meals. In most cultures, people celebrate birthdays, holidays, and special occasions by doing what? Sharing a meal. Either they go out to eat, or they'll you know, go over to someone's house, or go to an event center, or something like that. And what is always the center of it all? Food. If you, if you have a celebration with no food, nobody's coming. <laughs> okay. Hey, imagine going to a wedding reception with no food. Who's going to come to the wedding, right? Sometimes more people show up at the reception <laughs> than at the wedding, you know, because there's going to be food there. I, 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 I continue to think that that's why. 
hey, I didn't see you at the wedding, you know, but they're, they're here to get food and don't even leave a little gift card on the table, you know. And so, hey, keep an eye on that stuff. But anyway, this shows something about an event's importance. And sharing over food connects us to each other in a way that other activities do not. It's something about gathering together over a meal or gathering, going out with friends and just having a meal together, eating with the family. It's just, it's just something that is special about that. And that's one of the reasons we started having fellowship meals back in 2015 was, was gathering together and just enjoying the company of each other. That's one of the great activities that, that does it. So just before his death, the night before his death, it's no surprise that Jesus did the same thing. He chose to explain the significance of his suffering with a meal. And that's what he did here in Matthew 26. Now, the Passover meal was established by God in Exodus 12. You know, when Israel came out of Egypt and they had their first ceremony, and that was the Passover. And so Jesus used the Passover as the setting for his final meal with his disciples. He didn't only proclaim that he was the Messiah who would suffer, but he also explained the purpose of his death. That this is the blood of the new covenant. He was suffering the punishment due his people. He says, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the word remission of sins. He was shedding as our substitute, shedding blood as our substitute. He took the Passover meal and demonstrated to his disciples how the promises of God's covenant with his people are fulfilled in him. So as he broke this bread and, and he declared that this is his body and in holding up the cup he declared that this is his blood. He proclaimed his identity as the ultimate and final Passover lamb that there will be no more blood shed his sacrifice was the last one and he was the lamb who takes away the sins of the world as we read in John 1 and 29 so the Lord's supper the Lord's table is the new covenant that's why we partake of it every fourth Sunday because it is a sign of the new covenant that Christ gave to his church under the old covenant they had to sacrifice what a lamb they had to find a lamb without blemish without spot and sacrifice it and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat but under the new covenant the communion meal represents the new covenant in his blood now Jesus not only pointed back to the old covenant he also pointed to the new because Moses and Jeremiah had pointed to a day when God would place a new heart in his people this is seen in Deuteronomy 30 and 6 and this is what Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy he says and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And then Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of a new covenant. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And this is the covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall each man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, 
for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And we see this fulfilled in Christ. That the Lord, when he saves us, he puts his spirit into our hearts. So they spoke of a day when God placed a new heart in his people. And when he saves us, that's what he does. He regenerates our hearts. He renews. He, he takes, as we read in Ephesians 2 this morning, he takes those of us who were dead in our trespasses and does what? Makes us new. Makes us alive. Though we were dead, as Paul said, he made us alive together with Christ in the heavenly places. That is part of the new covenant. So Jesus pointed back to the old and pointed forward to the new with the new covenant. The old covenant uh, celebrated the work God did for his people. But the new covenant celebrates what God does in us by giving us a new heart because the law could not give Israel a new heart. That's why they kept violating covenant. But God gave us a new heart, and that's what the new covenant does. It celebrates what God does in us. And that is done by the Holy Spirit. That is the work that God does in us as a believer. It is done by means of the Holy Spirit, whom he gives to everyone who believes. We don't have to go back and get a second blessing as uh, the Pentecostals falsely teach. Everyone who is saved has the Holy Spirit. We'd have to go back to that fountain again. The writer in Hebrews 8 says that the old covenant was not sufficient. So therefore God promised that he would give his people new hearts. So the application of this principle is that the new covenant is better because God's spirit will be in our heart. And that was something, again, that the law could not do. The law could not change or generate the heart. And this means, even beyond that, the law was a good moral code, but being moral doesn't change a person's heart. You know that an atheist can be moral? Now, their morals come from God, the same God that they reject, but an atheist can be a very moral person. They can. They can be very. They can be very nice people. But being moral doesn't mean that you have a new heart. You can be moral and be just as godless as you can be, and still be a moral person. You can obey the speed limit. You can help the old lady at the grocery store to you know put her groceries in the car for her and take her cart back and put in her car and close the door and watch her as she drives off to make sure she doesn't run into anything you could do all that but your heart can still be darkened the law was external it was an external way of obeying God but the spirit is internal and that's what the new covenant did as our as our substitute Christ brought about the new covenant and because the spirit is eternal and internal it produces in us the joy peace and assurance that comes by means of the Holy Spirit so we're seeing this morning is the implications of Christ as our substitute in our last our third and last principle is that Jesus is the self-giving king who brings salvation to his people. And we find this in the narrative on the cross we find in Matthew 27. As God's judgment for sin came down upon his innocent son, even the weather was affected. What does the scripture say? From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, three hours, there was what? Darkness. 
And mind you, the sixth hour was around noon. Just imagine in the middle of the day, it's what, it's almost 12 o'clock here. Just imagine all of a sudden it goes dark. That is a supernatural event. <laughs> Besides it being an eclipse, which it wasn't. Yes. And the weather was affected. And then Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this was the key moment in Jesus' life. This was the moment for which he came. This was the moment he anticipated in Gethsemane when he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. That cup of suffering was going to happen when the father forsook him. Just imagine in our finite human minds, a parent abandoning their child in their worst point of agony, in their, their, their greatest time of need. And that parent walks away from that child, and that child is crying out, why are you forsaking me? Why are you leaving me? That's a poor illustration, but just kind of making a point of what's taking place here because there's, there's no earthly illustration that can be sufficient to describe what took place here. But Jesus knew that that, that cup was coming the night before. Those three hours was the moment when Christ drank the cup of his father's wrath for all of us and became the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. In that moment, that cup that he took at that meal was fulfilled. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And what was God's will? That Christ endured God's wrath against sin. Jesus knew that he would suffer the curse of sin, so why did he ask God to forsake him? That's a good question. I surveyed a couple of uh, theologians, and this was uh, a few reasons that uh, some of them gave. It said, first, it indicated the physical and emotional agony that Jesus experienced on the cross. Because, look, the cross was real. Christ was the God-man. He suffered as man. He suffered a real death. He suffered a real crucifixion. Those were real nails. Those were real thorns. That was a real spear that went in his side. That was real vinegar that he was given to drink. Those punches to his jaw by his tormentors and the plucking out of his, of his beard was real. His body being lashed to pieces on that whipping post was real. He suffered a real crucifixion. The physical and emotional agony for six hours on that cross was real. Also, it indicated his feeling, another theologian said it indicated his feeling of separation from God <laughs> as he experienced the curse of sin. And just as a observation here, this is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus did not address God as Father. Rather, he said, my God. This is because a holy God cannot look at sin. He cannot look at sin. Habakkuk 1 and 13. Habakkuk the prophet said, you are of pure. He was speaking of God. He says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. 
Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? So Habakkuk, the prophet, testified that God is of pure eyes than to behold evil and that he cannot look on wickedness. So that was the second uh, reason. But more importantly, as R.C. Sproul said, this cry demonstrated Jesus' confidence in the midst of his agony. His cry was the first verse of Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm, by the way. A psalm that begins with despair, yet ends in victory in the 24th verse of that psalm. Even while Jesus faced the wrath of God, he did so with confidence and peace, trusting God's righteous protection even as he suffered. So it wasn't a helpless and hopeless cry of why have you forsaken me. There was a glorious end to that. So this is why Jesus gave up his own life. It was not taken from him. Jesus says no one takes my life. He has the power to take his life. And he has the power to raise it up. That's why we see in Matthew 27 and 50, Jesus says, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew says he gave up his spirit. Luke records in Luke 23 and 46 that Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend or I entrust my spirit. In John's gospel, John underscored Jesus' authority over his own life when he recounts Jesus' last words where Jesus says, it is finished. That's John 19 and 30. Jesus declared the same thing in John 10 in his uh, great shepherd discourse. John 10, 17 and 18, he says, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it. No one took Jesus' life. He what? He gave it willingly as our substitute. He wasn't some innocent, helpless, oh, you poor little thing. No, Jesus gave as our substitute. He gave his life. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the gospel calls us, friends, to believe in a suffering Messiah. There are many Christian traditions, and I will call them apostate traditions, that downplay Christ's suffering as our sinless sacrifice but the scriptures don't avoid it he is our sacrifice he did suffer as our sinless sacrifice and as our substitute so in application we can learn from Christ's last words on the cross that he took on all our sins and this is the great thing I love about it when I just think about it sometimes he took on our sins, past, present, and future. Man, thank you, Lord. Our future sins have already been paid for. The ones we haven't committed yet. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Past, present, and future. And his sacrificial work was final, and it was complete. It was total. When he says it is finished, that means that work was done. Our redemption is accomplished. The means of salvation through Christ has been made. And it was only made once. Thank you, Lord. In conclusion, how to contemplate Christ's sufferings. This is from Bob. Bob did a message on this uh, a few, oh, I think it was like 2014-2015. He did a sermon called How to Contemplate Christ's Sufferings. This is a couple of things that um, he wrote down that I asked him if I could borrow. He says the Messiah wasn't overcome by his suffering. Yes, he was afflicted, 
He was accused. He hung on a tree at the hands of sinful people. But Jesus was in control the whole time. When the time came, he left with the Roman guards. He endured three false trials. He stood before Pilate without defense. He declared that he would give his life in love. And Jesus invites us to follow him in his mission. He wants us to trust in his person as the Messiah and in the work he accomplished on the cross. In what ways does Christ's sacrifice for us compel us to sacrifice our comfort in order to reach others with the good news of forgiveness? That's a good question for us to ponder. And lastly, he said, uh, it is in accepting that he is the suffering servant who gave his life for us that we find the courage to sacrifice for his mission. If we want our lives to be marked by following Jesus in his mission, we must put our faith in Jesus as the self-giving king who laid down his life for us and point other people to do the same. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you as we look to the work of Christ as our suffering substitute. Lord, we can't thank you enough for the truth that Christ died in our place. He took our place on the cross. He bore your wrath against sin. Father, help us in our mission as we talk and evangelize people, that we talk to our loved ones, our co-workers, our friends, that they don't have to walk around with the burden of their sin. They don't have to walk around carrying the burdens of their sin. But that there's one, there's a Savior, there's a perfect sacrifice who paid the price for their sins. And he bids them to come. He bids them to come and be saved. He bids them to come and bow down and turn away from their sins and turn to him and be saved. And he will put in them that new heart of the new covenant. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you use it to strengthen the saints, strengthen the church, fortify our belief, in Christ and Lord I pray that you use it to bring sinners to a saving faith in you Lord that they may be saved from your wrath that is sure to pour out on them for all of eternity in hell in Christ's name I pray Amen